Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very pleased to be joined uh, by a team of folks from Cyber Vista, which is a cybersecurity training company. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, my, my friends and colleagues. Thank you. Thank you for having Thanks us. For having us. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so I'm joined by uh, Simone Jung and Sam. Uh, Simone uh, is the CEO of CyberVista. Uh, Jung is the chief product officer and Sam works in product management uh, with Jung. And uh, hopefully we're going to be able to get uh, some different perspectives from each of you. And, uh, and again, it would be wonderful if it's a, a free flowing, comfortable conversation, which is what we always aim for. Uh, I think I'll begin with, with you, Simone. Uh, so uh, can, you, can you tell our listeners a little bit of your backstory? Uh, you know, what got you into cybersecurity? How, uh, how you landed with, uh, with CyberVista? And then I think we'll, we'll go around the horn a bit. Sure. So I got into cybersecurity in 2005, wow. um, but my background actually was originally in counterterrorism. Mm. So I actually worked for the Department of Defense mm -hmm. uh, after graduating from grad school mm -hmm. and was really focused on the counterterrorism mission, tracking down terrorists. And when I when I left and, and, and started doing some contracting work in 2005, I ended up supporting the intelligence community mm -hmm. and started supporting what was then computer network operations. So it was primarily an intelligence mission. So we were looking at how do you identify what are the bigger threats and vulnerabilities to DOD information systems. So it was not cyber yet. It actually didn't become cybersecurity until 2007. Ah. Uh, and that was a result of the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative, which dumped a huge amount of money into the nation to protect our infrastructure and you know cyber assets. And really, you know, so had been doing that ever since mm -hmm. and took that intelligence community experience and supported the intelligence community in a variety of different functions, all within the cybersecurity realm mm -hmm. um, for the better part of the next decade. And then moved into working with commercial companies who were then starting to realize that they had massive cybersecurity problems on their hands, too. Got it. And the financial services sector has a huge amount of you know, vulnerabilities and they are essentially critical infrastructure. And so what happens when they have to, to put together programs that protect them from these kinds of, of cyber risks? Yep. Uh, so that was my background. I come from the cyber industry mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I had I gotten to CyberVista, one of our, our founders. And the reason for that was because I myself had a massive talent issue. I had over a hundred analysts that worked for me at its peak in the intelligence community and the contracts we supported there. And I had a constant talent churn problem. Mm. I couldn't find the right people that were qualified. If I did, I had to actually train them up on my own. Mm -hmm. Once I trained them up on my own, they'd come back to me and it'd be like 18 months later and they'd say, thank you so much for this experience. I just got a job offer with competitor X, Y, or Z, and yeah. it's 30% more, mm -hmm. you know, and I'd be like, I can't do that. Right. So I, I was very acutely familiar with the problem. And um, when the opportunity came along to really think about how we could fuse best practices and innovations in education and learning, mm -hmm. uh, which I knew nothing about, mm -hmm. um, with my understanding of where employers and the problem really lies. Yep. That was an incredibly compelling problem. And I really wanted to, to kind of be part of helping to solve that. And that's, and that's what really brought you to totally. Cyber Vista. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, it's fascinating background. And, uh, and we'll definitely want to 
circle back on some of that, cause, uh, uh, whatever you're able to share, because uh, uh, it sounds like there'd, there'd be some really fascinating uh, stories, especially going back into the early 2000s, which is kind of like the Wild times. West. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, and then uh, shifting over to you, Jung, uh, can you tell a little bit of your origin story uh, as a cyber Vistin? No, I'd be happy to. Uh, I'd actually, I'm, I'm happy to be back at the Kaplan office because my origin story in uh, in learning actually starts with the uh, me having joined the MCAT team back in the early 2000s. So, yeah. Mike, and you and I go way back yeah. uh, in, in terms of knowing, you know, going into back to the working together. So this is good to be back at the uh, old Kaplan mothership. Yeah, so, and, uh, uh, and just on that, we could tell some stories. They just would be a lot more boring. Uh, so we won't do that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. So uh, in terms of how I got to cybersecurity, uh, it's very similar to a lot of how the other people in the cybersecurity have gotten to where they are, which is at very. So I actually, after Kaplan's experience, I went to business school thinking that I was going to do educational. Uh, and so in some ways, I was going to you know, work in the education field that's similar to Kaplan. But I took a little bit of a turn and decided to work for a hedge fund for about eight years. Mm -hmm. So that's the world that I where I got to sort of learn about the risk management, how to actually handle very important assets, sure. money, for yeah. example. Mm -hmm. And uh, but that uh, for some reason did not work out. So us, we don't have enough time to talk about that. Sure. But uh, during that time, where the founders of CyberVista came calling, we used to work together at Kaplan and said, "Are you interested in helping us develop uh, programs in that cybersecurity education now?" I knew a lot about how to build courses. What mm -hmm. I did not know was about cybersecurity. So I actually had to talk to a lot of different people, including Simone, who drew me to this day, it's seared in my brain, a beautiful drawing about how all the cybersecurity work stars are dependent on each other. So mm -hmm. uh, that along with a lot of studying got me to up to speed. And you know, I, I, initially I was very, very hesitant to join the world because I didn't really know a lot about it. But what I found out is that there's a lot of folks in cybersecurity who changed their jobs to be in that. Mm -hmm. And that was an eye-opening moment for me. And it also enabled me to be able to assert myself in terms of how to actually best solve this, uh, not only the training issue, but actually how to actually bring about a significant changes in workforce shortages that's happening. Yeah. So that's how I came to Cyber, Cyber Vista and cybersecurity. Awesome. And uh, to your credit, I think you, uh, you're a demonst you demonstrated that these skills are learnable because you're someone who came from outside of the cyber industry. And now, uh, you know, imposter syndrome aside, uh, you're an expert. Uh, so, so, so good job by you. And then uh, rounding it out, uh, Sam, we wanted to get your perspective. Uh, what brought you uh, to cybersecurity and to CyberVista in particular? So actually to echo kind of Jung's background, I don't have a background in cybersecurity, uh, non-IT background. I was actually a, a history major and started my career in strategic communications, crisis communications, and speech writing. So in fact, when I hmm. told my mom I was going to be on the podcast, she was like, is it a Civil War podcast or baseball? <laughs> I was like, well, something else actually. Uh, so I explained to, you know, Jung, my job interview, I just think that, you know, good writing is simply good teaching or good explaining and good mm -hmm. teaching is universal no matter what the subject is. So that's how I found myself here in the cybersecurity world. Yeah. And I do uh, product innovation at CyberVista and happy to be here. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And it's, it's, uh, I think, Simone, you mentioned even back in the day, uh, the skills were changing very fast. Uh, talent was at a premium talent was fluid too, it would move around. Um, so uh, 
that's still the case today, I would imagine. And I'd like, you know, like in some ways that, that that's why CyberVista exists. So uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the talent gap, uh, the skills gap that exists? Because maybe it's more a skills gap than a talent gap. But, uh, but I'd love to hear you, you know, just sort of lay out the, the current state of play. Yeah, so it's a little bit of both. Um, the, the talent gap exists because there are, you know, 3 million positions worldwide that are just unfilled because mm. they don't have the people to fill them. Yep. And then if you look at a litany of studies that came out, a good chunk or percentage of companies, in fact, one recent study um, in 2019 found that a third of companies uh, identified that a full 25% of their workforces were just unqualified for the positions they were in. Wow. Okay. So it's both. Yeah. And the state of being, I think, is you do have to kind of go back to the history of, of, of the evolution of cybersecurity as a field. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I first got into it, the roles that we had then are different than what they are now. Mm -hmm. um, I was in the threat intelligence space. That was not an area that was actually considered a traditional information assurance role. It was a technical role, and we were doing something different. Mm -hmm. Today, threat intelligence is commonplace. It's a very widely accepted job role but now we have these further types of roles called threat hunters, and those didn't exist five years ago. Mm. So as the field matures, it's starting to get more specialized. Mm. And in getting more specialized, it's creating more areas that you need different types of niche skill sets to yep. fill it. Yep. But it's all getting defined as we're creating the positions. Right. So if you haven't even defined the positions, how can you actually, you know, the like training and education is the lagging indicator in all yeah, of that. And right. so it takes a long time right, right. to have those things catch up. Mm -hmm. And as they start to catch up, and we saw this in particular with university systems and traditional education, by the time they build out or develop or deploy a program, right. new jobs have evolved. And so they're yeah. teaching to you know, computer security a la five years prior. Yeah, exactly. And then as new, you know, we were uh, talking during our prep as new new technologies emerge, like uh, brain computer interfaces, as an example, um, that's a new, a new component that is hackable, is attackable, and the, hopefully the frameworks are flexible enough to kind of adapt, but the actual skills need to be retrained uh, because they're probably different than what they were before. Right. I think the other thing that you're seeing increase, especially in the private sector, is just how much the roles that are required to be successful in any business are the undercutting or the underpinnings of technology. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to be in a technology business, and arguably every business out there is currently in the technology business, yes. that means that there needs to be a security component that gets built into it too. Right. So the distinctions even between cyber professional roles versus who needs to do cybersecurity work as part of their other job role right. is getting really blurred. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's kind of what I meant around the, the talent. Uh, in some ways, the, the talent or maybe just like the core competencies are there. It's just people haven't been trained in cyber. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the thing that I think is interesting. And that's why, you know, pivoting a little bit to you, Jung, like you are, you're an example of that, where like you, you had the, the talent, you just didn't you hadn't applied your sort of natural ability to, to learn things to cyber. Um, so this skills gap that's there, it's a problem, but it is also an opportunity in that uh, if we could identify the types of people who would either be a professional or would um, develop the competencies that someone who's a professional in another field would need, um, 
that seems like a big opportunity. And I'd love to hear you uh, sort of talk a little bit about that, both in terms of how do we train professionals, uh, but also uh, what kind of competencies uh, could be developed for, uh, for other folks who maybe aren't officially going to be hired into a cyber role, um, all those adjacent roles that need the competencies that, that Simone was talking about. Sure, I'll actually answer your second question first, which sure. is the competency part. And in some ways, there was a study that we conducted with uh, some of the consulting firm in terms of their workforce development. And time after time and time after, and I'm, I apologize, I'm not saying that correctly, what we got consistently, consistency is a better word to use, consistently from the people who are looking for very, very high level cybersecurity folks were not prowess of technical knowledge, mm -hmm. but uh, critical thinking. Mm -hmm and a good communication skills, being able to recognize how to actually formulate your uh, communication so that it, it actually fits who you're, whoever you're talking to, whether it's a customer, mm -hmm. whether it's a technical person, whether it's senior management. Those are actually, is there any other skill do you remember from, from the conversation, Simone? Uh, yeah, you know, I also remember they talked about, yeah, like how can you distill a requirement and synthesize it into what problem you're trying to solve in mm. order to then structure the right approach. Mm. So that kind of synthesis of what are you trying to answer versus then how do you actually interpret the results. Which, which is interesting too, because those are sort of uh, quote unquote higher level mm -hmm. thinking and lots of times uh, maybe like a rudimentary understanding of cybersecurity is like, it's very sort of map this thing to this thing, you know, and like very like sort of almost lower level technical. And uh, it's really interesting too, because another theme that comes up on the show a lot is automation and artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, I imagine uh, those types of tools are relevant in identifying cyber threats and sort of doing some, some of the, the things that uh, maybe you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago was done by humans. Um, so any, any thoughts on that? No, absolutely. I think that is exactly what's happening. In order to be able to be a good cybersecurity defender or investigator, you really have to understand one discipline of the cybersecurity and be able to blend it with the other discipline. So social engineering along with the technical skills, mm -hmm. database skills along with being able to do understand what type of attacks that's available. So a lot of interconnecting reads required because from the defensive perspective, you actually have to be aware of thousands of different connections, but from the attackers or hackers perspective, mm -hmm. all they have to do is make one connection work. Right. So that's a critical skill that uh, you know we're finding it out. Uh, so we're recognizing that this is a skill that's sort of uh, not a skill and I don't even say aptitude that you sort of need to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Now training part, and, 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 and Mike, you and I go way back in terms of training pieces. I mean, when I used to work on MCAT and the GRE program, yeah. we had to, had to build programs to be able to teach. And mm -hmm. I know you also taught psychology back in the sure. day. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, it's gathering the materials and, and sort of uh, presenting in a way that is very, very accessible. Now, something that I found creating training pieces for cybersecurity is that you really have to create this for everybody, not mm. just the, the sort of technical people. Then mm -hmm. I think that I sort of referred to it in the earlier part of my, my introduction is that people who are in this cybersecurity space come from varied backgrounds. So the assumption is that start from this beginning and then just bring it up very, very quickly. And right. that's been very, very helpful in terms of creating the courses. Mm -hmm. And being able to have all that library of knowledge to be able to transfer, that's also been very, very helpful. Yeah. Um, 
And I actually want to throw it to Sam just to see if there's anything that you want to add about building training courses. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is those soft skills that Jung and Simona mentioned earlier that all the employers are looking for. The reason why they're looking for them is actually in a way they're harder to learn. <laughs> they're harder to teach. Uh, so in a weird way, the, the technical skills um, you know, we think we have like a roadmap and a formula for actually teaching it. And the nice part about cybersecurity in particular is that, you know, it's not overly arcane. So obviously it's very technical, but mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense. A lot of it is common sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I think as long as people are thinking about it in the right way, it's actually very approachable. And there's so many different various fields that you can draw connections to, to cybersecurity. So right. for example, an obvious one is healthcare. So like in the same way that you wouldn't leave a wound you know, open on a patient, you wouldn't leave unpatched software on a device or a computer. Mm -hmm. So, and that is just one easy example. And there are so many other numerous examples, not only in healthcare, but across multiple fields. Yeah, and it, it does tie to uh, the narrative aspect of, uh, of cyber that I think is really interesting and uh, sort of the allegorical aspect of it too, where like people uh, want to understand these complex fields and frequently the way you make them more accessible is to analogize. And, uh, and that was like, uh, you know, Sam bringing up healthcare, uh, I think is a really uh, good angle. Uh, you got something to add? Yeah, there's the only thing that I wanted to add, which is that the, when, when you approach any other subject like uh, MCAT or science or, or anything else, there's been a lot of predefined areas of high voltage. You have to, like there is a biology you have to understand. You have to understand chemistry. You have to understand physics. You mm -hmm. also have to understand this and that. Now, when we, when we actually started to create courses uh, for Sarah Vista, what we recognize is that there has not been well-defined subjects. And one of the things that we really had to do was define what individual silos were and what topics go into it. Now, National uh, Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, NICE, has done a phenomenal job of listing out all of the, we'll call it KSET, knowledge, skills, ability, abilities, tasks, abilities and tasks. Yeah. Thank you. And the, uh, what, it, what unfortunately for us from the training perspective, it was just a list without any precedence mm -hmm. and in terms of what you need to know to get to the next level. So what we had to do initially at Cyber Vista was lay that all of that, and there are about 1,600 of, of them, we laid that out in an organization so that we could use to be able to create not only the framework mm -hmm. and the, what we call taxonomy, just yeah. to wonk out a little bit. Yeah, uh, wonk away. <laughs> Uh, but to be able to organize in a way that we could create content for. So mm -hmm. that's something that we're very, very proud of. As our Vista. Yeah. yeah. And Jung is being a little modest there because when we actually interviewed different employers about asking kind of what skills was most relevant to the most important job roles, we got a lot of different answers. <laughs> so not only could they not agree on the skills or the knowledge, they couldn't even agree on what to call a certain job role. So mm -hmm. the field is in worse shape than uh, you think. Right. Right. And well, and even uh, the idea, you know, getting back to that previous uh, topic of like just cyber literacy or fluency in the domain, uh, maybe for you, Simone, in particular, when you're talking to a leader in industry, how do you navigate that when you're trying to explain uh, pretty technical concepts to someone who may not be technical at all, yet they're also responsible for significant investments around uh, making sure that their data is secure and that they're uh, avoiding risk. 
I think there's two kind of folds to that answer. The, the first is that if you're talking to an executive that ultimately is responsible for overseeing the budget, but they've often delegated to someone who is more technical, mm -hmm. what you have to focus on with them is educating them and making them literate in how cybersecurity is a component of their overall business risk. Mm -hmm. And if you can tie it into terms of risk, mm -hmm. then that's a language that most business people at many levels understand because mm -hmm. that is their job function. And yeah. so this is just another facet of that risk. Now, then the business case challenge becomes how do you quantify that? How do you actually put that into dollars and cents terms so that you can make some determining factors? Right. And that's where they'll turn to often the technical person or if you're a smaller company, an outsourced provider right. and try and kind of read the tea leaves and understand, well, if I make this investment for $250,000, mm -hmm. uh, is that going to save me $250,000 in loss or I will never know? Right. Um, and I would say that you know, those who don't have technical backgrounds aren't really able to answer that question because it's hard to evaluate whether a technology, like a technology solution will truly effectuate that. You right. can't guarantee that it's going to stop a breach. Right. And the technical experts that they rely on struggle to put that into to business terms because you can't guarantee that you're going to prevent a certain amount of loss. Right. Right. It's interesting because it's almost like buying insurance, right? So like if, if you, you, you buy the insurance, you don't, Except even more so, I guess it's uh, you're trying to be proactive against risk. And I think frequently when people think about cybersecurity, it winds up being reactive. So like when when you war game a scenario and I've been through some of those tabletop trainings, it's frequently like something just happened. What do you do? Yeah. And I think frequently, um, I think to get out ahead of that, uh, you know, it's almost like loss aversion. You have to get people to think about, you don't want to be like this example. Can you talk a little bit about like what those conversations are like? Yeah, I think it comes down to understanding what is the most important component to your business. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, as a tangent, I think this is where a lot of security professionals sometimes fail is because they tend to take themselves out of the context of what their role is within the business and what their business is trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, but it's incredibly important to be able to first define what makes us special? Mm -hmm. What are our crown jewels? Yep. Is the crown jewel your customers and therefore their data and you have to keep that secure because if they lose trust, then you have no business. Right. Um, look at like what's happening with Facebook and social media right yeah, now sure. um, and those tech giants. Mm -hmm. um, is your business around health data um, and protecting health data, right? Like that really matters. Right. Um, even an example like UPS, that's kind of my favorite example. Like everyone says, well, that's a logistics company, mm -hmm. but it's not, it's a technology company because right. they actually, like every one of those trucks has sensors all over it. That's collecting every movement of a driver. If they back up, if they make a wrong turn, if they mm. have to turn around, it's all captured in the name of, you know, just massing amounts of data so they can make package delivery more efficient and faster. Right. And so when you think about like, what is the most important thing to your business, you have to triage the initiatives you're going to take in that perspective. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you're going to throw money, good money after bad. Right. It's not going to be impactful and you're not going to ultimately contribute to lowering that risk profile. Yeah. You know, no insurance policy is going to save you from that. Yeah, that makes makes a ton of sense. And uh, and then a lot of this, I think, you know, if you think about wargaming or uh, like scenario-based thinking, that's very central to uh, training folks, right? So like, how do how do you anticipate new unexpected uh, threats and breaches 
And one of the ways you do that is just by taking those reps, getting the practice that uh, that's needed to say, to, to sort of be exposed to, well, here's what happened at UPS and, and here's what happened to this healthcare company. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, Joan? Because I know that that's a, that's a big part of what cybersecurity training frequently is. Like it's, it's almost like that wargaming scenario-based thinking uh, that uh, increasingly, as I do research and do shows, like um, it's becoming much more relevant to uh, develop that scenario-based thinking and that mindset of being responsive uh, even if the scenarios that you're exposed to are not going to be an exact fit uh, when when faced with a novel challenge. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. In terms of the, the kind of people that we need to have in these critical cybersecurity uh, areas are the people who actually can think well in those critical situations. When your incident does happen, breach does happen, they have to be able to come up with a, a good way to get around that. So there's nothing like a good practice run to make that happen. And so there's a lot of movement to make sure that there's a lot of good scenarios for them to practice with. Like, mm-hmm. you know, business school case study really can be modified a little bit for cybersecurity professional and say, look, you know what? We just got a breach mm-hmm. and now they have a hold of the CEO's email account. What are you going to do? Right. And so there are a lot of that that's actually built into some, to some of our courses. Now, having said that, what I've also been finding out from the works that I've been done with enterprises is that we also need to fill the gaps at the very bad bottom. When I say bottom, meaning you have to have to make sure that anybody who works in cybersecurity, forget people who are in the adjacent roles, understand different things that's happening. Because mm-hmm. right now, as we sort of started the conversation about the workforce shortage, we're finding even big gaps, even in the in sort of the the basic cybersecurity roles. Right. So I wanted to sort of fill that up first as we're moving along, but for the higher level courses, for sure, it's critical for them to be able to do, you know, not only just to catch the flag, but understand the business consequence yeah. and the, even like a social consequence behind how to actually sort of make sure that you plug this hole, yeah. especially for somebody who actually works in medical devices. Right. If they do not fix that correctly, then somebody does get really get hurt. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, what you were talking about, Simone, too, where like a good, and I think you and I have talked about this uh, previously, Jung, like a good cybersecurity professional uh, has competencies in the domains that they're serving. And if they don't, they're at least able to understand what what's different about UPS versus a healthcare company and where you know, just so that you almost think like uh, enterprise risk manager. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's like a next level uh, thing to take away for our listeners too, is like that mindset shift is, uh, is something we could all uh, benefit from. And it's also uh, interesting to think about folks maybe later in their careers who are trying to understand how to stay job relevant in some ways, you know, the, the harder part is getting the depth within your field and then addressing the site, like ramping up on the cyber skills afterwards. Um, it's just a different way to think about, uh, you know, who might be able to fill the more senior analyst roles. Yeah, no, context matters. Um, I think that's true in any field, not mm-hmm. just cybersecurity. And so being able to have people that understand the technical ramifications, but tie it to the overall narrative of what you're trying to protect is mm-hmm. important. And that is something that, you know, someone who has a career long history in financial services 
brings to bear a whole lot of un understanding of that particular industry that even a eight-year cybersecurity professional who's served in a different vertical would have no idea. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there are lots of ways that you can see some of those adjacent roles become more relevant. Yep. Um, because you're then drawing from technical experts that might be more agnostic to right. a, a career experience, mm -hmm. but they need those translators and they need those that can help tell those stories. Yeah, exactly. And like the idea of, um, you know, not being too narrowly expert in the field. Like that there is, I mean, obviously you need those competencies, but like if you are exclusively focused on the cybersecurity competencies without understanding that context, that's actually dangerous. Yeah, well, and you know, it brings up another interesting challenge that the, that the cybersecurity field has right now, which is around, you know, career pathways and how does someone get into a role, um, and how do they establish themselves as an expert? But then they often find themselves tapping out quickly. You kind of reach your own mini ceiling, mm. and there's really very little room for progression. Mm -hmm. And the industry hasn't been able to really define what it means to go from one of those roles into an adjacent role. Mm -hmm. How do you get a broad base of experience? What does that then mean for your career progression and your mm -hmm. professional development? And certainly what keeps you, you know, as an individual engaged, dynamic, feel like you're actually, you know, learning across the field. Um, because like many things, that context is what you gain from experience. Right. Um, and you can't just, you know, there are very few things where you get to stay in a, you know, one inch wide, right. mile deep hole right. Right, <laughs> for right. the rest of your career. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then just pivoting a little bit to maybe the narrative aspect, uh, maybe bring uh, Sam back in. And then I'd love to hear from all of you on this. Um, cyber also seems very much uh, in the collective consciousness or the zeitgeist, as I like to say. So um, how, uh, what examples are out there that are good in the popular culture that, that it really helped elevate the understanding? And, uh, and then what, what are some of the more um, uh, dangerous examples or just bad, bad ways of understanding this? Because I know frequently pop culture gets it wrong. Uh, so, so as the, as the English major, uh, in the room or, uh, near the room, uh, any thoughts on that? Like just from a narrative, like what makes a compelling piece of pop culture or news story that everybody thinks about and, uh, which of those jump to mind that are good and which of them jump to mind that maybe, uh, are perpetuating, uh, myths or, or bad understandings. Uh, so, Mike, just to clarify, I'm the history major. Oh, history the, major, but you write well. Sorry, uh, there you go. <laughs> well, hey, the, this, the only difference between an English major and a history major is that we write about stuff that actually happens. There you go. That's the way I think about it. Well done. Um, and, 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 you know, I, you can tell I'm not an English major because I didn't know that that big fancy word started with a Z that you threw out. Zeitgeist. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you clarified the question. Yeah. Um, so one of the I'm glad you asked the, the fall on question, which is, you know, the whole concept of dangerous um, narratives or, or misleading. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest one and actually this is something that um, um, a, a, another uh, fellow former uh, CyberVista employee Amjad was talking about when he was on your show a while ago. He right. was explaining that in, you know, popular culture, we, we show breach and hacks happening, you know, within, within seconds, right? And of course, the reality is, from the attacker's perspective, this is a very, very long, drawn-out process. Mm. So, of course, that has consequences for, you know, the victim as well. Mm -hmm. So, one of the major things to be thinking about is when you discover that you've been breached, oftentimes, the hacker will actually be in your system, or the intruder mm -hmm. will kind of be in your 
you know, critical database or in your yeah. network for months, if not years. So the damage is actually greater than you would think. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the, the one big takeaway of, hey, this stuff takes longer. Mm -hmm. Because of that, it's longer to actually discover. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you really have to have a good incident response team that's good at quantifying the damage based on how long the attacker has been in your system. Yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me of the whole horror horror movie. The the calls are coming from inside your house. So like when you discover the hacker, right. they're they're probably still in there. Uh, and they've been any, there for a while. Exactly. Uh, any other thoughts in terms of just pop culture or uh, that was really interesting, Sam. So I, I appreciate that, especially for a history major. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I wish I had some good pop culture examples. I kind of have mostly bad ones. Mm. Um, you know, if anyone saw cy like CSI Cyber, yeah. Ter terrible yeah. um, example. I think that um, right now where pop culture has gotten it right, and I don't think there's an example, but I think they've gotten it right at the macro level because it's become a common term. Mm -hmm. If I started talking about breaches and general cybersecurity, like what I did seven years ago, I mean, eyes glazed over immediately. Yeah. And now pretty much anyone you meet on the street has read an article because they are routinely on the front page mm -hmm. of every, you know, mainstream publication that reports on this. Everyone right. has like a cyber, a security and information technology beat. Right. Um, so they've succeeded there. Where I think the, the, that pop culture hasn't helped is when you think about like even the talent gap, mm -hmm. they have been, they've kind of done a disservice to making it a cool field to enter. Mm. Um, there was a really interesting statistic I saw that, you know, the average age of um, an information risk professional um, in the federal government, so this is specific to the government, uh, is currently 64. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Because um, they've been in that forever. And like the percentage of millennials that are in these fields in the federal government mm -hmm. is like under 11%. Wow. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's huge. So yeah. how do you attract more people into the field? Pop culture can be incredibly compelling in helping to make a, a field sexy. Right. Um, you know, when, when West Wing came out, everyone was going to go into politics, like right. everything. When Law and Order came out, everyone was going to be a lawyer. And yeah. they didn't care that, you know, they made it look like a trial and all the prep could happen in, you know, 40 minute episode. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you, you still have to do all the legwork. Right, right. Um, so... I, I think there have been a lot. I think that that's something that pop culture still needs to get right. Yeah. They need to make it more accessible hmm. um, and they need to allow people to see themselves in the roles yeah. more than they have. Because right now the, the trope is like someone in their basement in a hoodie. Yes. You know. Mr. Robot. Yeah. yeah. It's all yeah. Mr. Robot all the time. Pounds. Yeah. And yeah. like those are particular roles within this field, but they're not the only roles. Right. Right, right. And, and also, I think even, even in the example of Mr. Robot, which is the one that, 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 that I always gravitate to nowadays, because I still feel like there are many stories that need to be told. And Mr. Robot seems to have gotten the collective attention, but it was really more making the, the hacker side sexy. And like, you know, when you think about CSI, uh, there still seems like a missed opportunity, like turning this into... Um, you know, even this is the, the whole screenplay that we can work on, but, uh, but like the, the actual espionage angle, um, which is, you know, honestly playing forth in the public theater of our pop culture and our national, uh, national uh, political spectrum these days. Those are synonymous now. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's really, I mean, and then uh, compound that with the fact that, um, every company is pursuing an AI strategy, which is a data strategy. It does seem like there's gonna be, this gap's gonna continue to grow, right? 
absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going away anytime yeah. soon. I mean, so certainly job security and opportunities yeah. for anyone that wants to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, but I also think, I think that's where it ties to, I mean, part of, you know, our commitment when we work with companies and part of the reason that we specifically work with companies is, you know, when you think about increasing the people that come into the field, that's, that is education institutions responsibility to get people ready and there's a whole host of things that still need to be done around like k through 12 how do you get more kids interested right. in computer science and stem and just yeah. understanding technology but we can't we don't afford to wait for them to actually come up through the systems mm -hmm. and so when we look at it we're like how do we take people that are in the workforce today that see the opportunity there mm -hmm show them that there is a path for them mm -hmm. and get them up to speed on the technical things that they can be successful in, in order to meet this big demand. Yeah. Cause we're not solving this problem by just putting out what we have. No universities are going to solve it just by kind of creating a new pipeline. Yeah. And like, there's just not one silver bullet to this, right. to this issue. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, which is an opportunity obviously. Uh, and then also it requires some flexibility and uh, creativity, I guess, to respond to uh, like really an ever-changing industry. Uh, we're coming close to time. So uh, I always like to ask uh, our guests uh, what trends uh, they're noticing either uh, within cybersecurity or just more broadly uh, as a, a learning and education uh, company. And actually this is a learning and education show. So that's a toss up. Uh, so I don't know if anyone has any ideas. Jung, you're making eye contact. Uh, <laughs> do you have any any thoughts? So I have uh, two things. One is that the uh, there's a, a cybersecurity by education in general right now has been mostly done in boot camp in five day models. That's literally has been how people's been learning, and they're recognizing that there needs to be other ways that people should get access to that. And uh, I'm doing a little bit of plug ourselves. We're an online training company and then people are recognizing how awesome it is to be able to not go away for five days to be able to get training. And that's mm -hmm. something that the, uh, that we see, do see more of and that you know, we are, we're happy that that is happening. Mm -hmm. And the other trend that I'm seeing is uh, me having to talk to a lot of different enterprises, how the difference of gap is between the has and have not. I know that's a topic that we talk about a lot, but people who actually are very large organization with the large resources have an extremely sophisticated, not only cybersecurity defense, but a very robust education and workforce development. Mm -hmm. While people on the right side, who may be multi-billionaire companies, but they have in some ways, and I hate to say this, no idea how to actually approach the, the discussions and the problems that we had at hand. So yeah. we're seeing a lot more of that. And I hope that that actual gap, the other gap we're talking about, sort of uh, that gets filled also quickly. Right. Yeah, well, one trend I concur 100% with uh, Jung's both points, especially the last one. Another another area that I see as a trend is, you mentioned earlier, Mike, around um, AI and machine learning. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly a buzzword right now in the security field as yeah. much as it is in everything else. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people right now are banking on how AI, machine learning, technology can actually help solve this people problem because we can automate away right. all of our problems. Right. And the trend that I see is um, that actually doesn't auto automate away the problem. It just automate transfers the problem to a different type of skill set. Yep. And so the trend is that you can take some of the repeatable tasks and, and you can kind of apply some good data to them, but it just actually forces up the type of person that's doing the analysis and interpreting those results and that data mm -hmm. in a way that's meaningful. 
Um, and that's actually kind of making a more complex skill set yeah. um, in the process. Right. So it, it, we have this huge gap and we're kind of, you know, we're solving the problem on the automation side, but it's actually kind of creating a, a more robust purple unicorn, as you call them, yeah. kind of what you need to, to do something with all that data. Which is really interesting if you think about it as a training company or a learning company. Uh, in some ways, you know, the easier training function is going to be supplanted by automation. And then the human skills, the, the things that are going to be uniquely human, human are going to be leveling up. So figuring out how to develop the training programs for the humans who are addressing that sort of leveled up uh, ecosystem, it's going to be super, uh, super interesting. Yeah, Sam and Zhang have their work cut out for them. <laughs> Any final thoughts, Sam? Absolutely. I will kind of take Jung's first point, but add a level deeper to it. I think Jung is right, is that historically, you know, cybersecurity is not taught very well. Mm -hmm. And finally, as an industry, not just CyberVista, we're paying you know, more attention to how we actually teach cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. But this attention isn't always positive attention, meaning it doesn't, it doesn't lead necessarily to teaching it the proper way. And I think one of the trends that's interesting is this whole concept of like innovation, you know, product innovation, how we teach innovation, and uh, which is a word that's close to my heart because this is my job title. But I, I say one of the trends I guess I want to debunk is that it's not really a fancy word, right? It's basically just doing the right thing before you're forced to and in our context of teaching like simply innovation is asking ourselves what's the best way to teach this what's the mm -hmm. best way to present this content and the right answer is actually obvious it's, it's often obvious mm -hmm. uh, and it's often very simple and uh, those two things are typically different from the norm mm -hmm. and you know common synonym of innovation is, is creativity yeah. but I think the best form of creativity is actually uh, you know simplicity so yeah. teaching and innovation and teaching well is actually often very simple yeah it's interesting too because a lot of these fields you know people are seeking out best practices and uh, reminds me of uh, the the quote you know best practices are for amateurs so like by the time you're defining the best practice so it's like a hacker has figured out some new breach. So it's almost like teaching the mindsets and the ways of thinking yep. and not being too narrow and like functionally fixed in the way you think about understanding the problem space and the ability to solve problems. Yeah. I love the creativity stuff. Um, also, this was a wonderful conversation. So uh, thanks very much to our friends uh, from cyber, cyber Vista, uh, Simone Petrella. Yeah. Uh, CEO, Jung Lee, the uh, Chief Product Officer, and Sam, I got your last name. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the history major. That's it. <laughs> Sam, That's all you <laughs> Sam, the history major. Wonderful conversation. If folks want to learn more about CyberVista, uh, where do they go? Head over to CyberVista.net or find us on Twitter at, at CyberVistaEd. Yeah, excellent. And uh, they're also at a, a lot of uh, conferences, uh, trying to engage uh, other workforces, keep the conversation going, and uh, we'll keep the conversation going here on Trending in Education. So thanks again for listening. You can find us uh, on Twitter at Trending in Ed. Uh, Facebook is the same. We're, we're getting active in LinkedIn. Uh, we're, we're, we're everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And uh, thanks again for listening today. Cool.